true crime documentaries are booming. But what do they tell us about criminal justice? And what do they leave out? I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. It seems every week I'm hearing about a new crime documentary. Serial killers, unsolved mysteries, prison confessions. The genre contains a wide spectrum, and I've programmed my fair share at festivals. I have a soft spot for crazy caper stories like Screwball about baseball players doping, or McMillions on crooks rigging the McDonald's Monopoly game. You can hear both of those filmmaking teams on past episodes. And I appreciate how they bring a sense of humor to covering American greed. But the stories that leave me unsettled are those heavy on bloodshed and short on social context. As those stories are multiplying on streaming platforms, I worry about what we're missing. So I turn to Alex Vitale. He wrote the book, The End of Policing. It came out in 2018 and then found a new audience last year with the rising movement to defund the police. I wondered what true crime looks like through his eyes. You know, we've experienced uh, up until this last year about 25, 30 years of consistent declines in, in serious and violent crime, and yet the number of real crime stories is exploding. Alex's book is just over 200 pages and covers a lot of ground. He breaks down how America's police are forced to confront an array of crises that could be better served with different expertise. Areas like mental health, school safety, homelessness, and immigration. He's also looking at the criminalization of drugs and sex work and how they could be treated in more productive ways. I'd recommend the book for any documentary maker or funder or distributor whose work is touching upon crime. Our conversation begins and ends with talking about the media. But in between, we discuss what's happening in the wider movement to defund the police. I want to start on a positive note. So I asked Alex if there are documentaries that he admires for how they explore criminal justice. He began by bringing up a series that you can find on Netflix. You know, there are some some things that have been, I think, helpful in the amplification of this kind of broad critique of the criminal justice system as it's currently constituted. I think one of my favorites is uh, Time, the Khalif Browder story. One of the things that was really appealing about that, and I did have some small role in that was that um, it showed the failures at like every step of the criminal legal system, the police, the prosecutors, the judges, the court system, the jail system, just systematically failed him at every step. And I think that, you know, when we're looking at the kind of real crime genre to me, it's divided up into these kind of two camps. One is getting into the head of a criminal or trying to solve a particular crime. And then there are these others that are really exploring these questions of justice. Is the system producing justice? Did we really do the right thing here? And um, I recall 
as a young person watching uh, The Thin Blue Line and uh, being impacted by the style of that, but also beginning to really think about whether or not justice is being done all the time by these institutions. We're about the same age, and I remember the impact of Thin Blue Line. Uh, and I think, you know, perhaps my naivete at that age, the thing that seems so shocking about the Thin Blue Line is, oh, my gosh, there was a man who was on death row who was innocent. Uh, and at the time, in my mindset, that seemed like, you know, a singular uh, incident uh, and um, you know, how good it was that a documentary filmmaker uh, came along and uh, shed light on it and uh, helped him get free. I think now with 30 years uh, perspective, I don't see it as uh, so singular. There's a whole genre of documentaries about people who are incarcerated, who are, who are innocent. I think also part of what was important about that for me was just the idea that someone could unpack something like this. Like, I think I was, I was clear about the idea that there were probably injustices, but the idea that there could be an independent investigation that would shed new light on a subject and, and that would, you know, result in this level of public attention was, for me, a new idea. I think you know, we grew up in a period where the media was like the major networks and the nightly local news and some, and newspapers. And so this was really, obviously there had been documentary filmmaking and things before, but just this idea of, of you know, an advocacy journalism in this long form that was capable of having these real world impacts. Let's think for a minute about the those films that are that we describe as the true crime genre, uh, which is really expanding uh, today. I wonder what you think that genre does in helping shape the public perception of policing. Well, I think the the a lot of the true crime dramatizations and and investigations are. You know, it's understandable why they're popular. You know, they deal often with these life and death issues, this, this interest we have in, like, what are the parameters of human capacity. Uh, but there, and some of these things have been really meaningful, in-depth explorations of, of important questions about, you know, the nature of human capacities. But there's also been a lot of, I think, exploitative journalism and kind of, uh, you know, uh, corporate uh, interest in just producing a lot of garbage. I think about like Nancy Grace on Headline News, you know, just constantly spewing out one crime story after another. And I think cumulatively, this produces a sense of insecurity that is distinct from reality. You know, we've experienced uh, up until this last year about 25, 30 years of consistent declines in, in serious and violent crime, and yet the number of real crime stories is exploding. And so when we do surveys of people about their perceptions of threat, 
they're wildly out of sync with reality. And I think part of this is driven by a, you know, constant flow of these real crime stories that make us think that there are serial killers and homicidal maniacs hiding behind every bush. And look, this has changed the culture too. I mean, the way that children are raised, uh, the, how we feel about safety in public, you know, I think has been shaped by some of these false perceptions around stranger danger and things like that. What's the kind of analysis that you would like to see more of uh, out of media? Well, you know, most violent crime occurs between people who know each other and has been preceded by lots of warning signals. And nothing is really done to prevent these warning signals from turning into some horrific outcome. And instead, there's a focus on these sensational sort of stranger cases, which are actually quite rare. Uh, and even in those cases, there were often warning signs that were not taken seriously. So my feeling is that on, on the true crime genre, you know, we need to try to put things into perspective, but also look at how the kind of punitive approach we have to crime has not been particularly effective at preventing a lot of violence that probably could have been prevented if we had different institutional mechanisms in place. Since last year, when uh, defund police you know, became a, a more popular hashtag um, uh, and your book was, you know, freshly discovered uh, uh, by people uh, several years after you had written it, um, and now you're being pulled into more conversations like this one. Um, I wonder when when you have those conversations uh, and, and sometimes you're being interviewed for uh, other people's documentaries or, you know, story-driven uh, podcasts. What are the things that uh, you find yourself having to explain that maybe you wish you didn't have to explain? Or are, you know, are there things that people are asking you that are missing the point? So, you know, a lot of this stuff revolves around questions of, of serious violence. And as a society, we, we've come to kind of accept uncritically a few ideas about this. One is that, you know, police are what are the sort of only possible institutional response that we could have to violence, that punitive systems of punishment are the appropriate way to respond to violence, and that violence is this like constantly looming threat and so a lot of what I do is try to disaggregate all that and to try to get us to think a little bit more critically about it, that violence is a lot of different things, that has a lot of different drivers behind it, but that there's a lot we can do to identify those drivers, to act proactively outside of a punitive framework. You know, one of the things we know about uh, young people who commit acts of serious violence is that almost all of them have been the victims of serious violence. At the very least, they've been the witnesses to serious violence in home, in the community, etc. And so contextualizing violence in that way at least opens the door to a conversation around responses 
that are reparative, preventative, restorative, rather than waiting till the damage is done and, you know, Xing someone out by, by executing them, life, with, life in prison, et cetera. So how are we doing? It's nine months since the Black Lives Matter street protests after George Floyd's killing. There was a lot of talk uh, then about uh, defund the police, even the Minneapolis um, City Council had uh, talked about taking real measures uh, in that respect. So what's the scorecard nine months later? So, you know, we have had some concrete victories, primarily in places where some pretty concrete organizing had been going on before this summer. So in places like Los Angeles and Oakland and and Austin and Albuquerque, you know, where people had been saying for years, we've turned too much over to the police. The community would like to see other kinds of investments for public safety. Uh, In places like that, we've seen resources shifted. We've seen new programmatic interventions like hiring more school counselors and reducing school policing or eliminating school policing creating non-police mental health crisis teams, investing more in community-based anti-violence initiatives. And uh, my sense is that this is going to continue apace. And uh, there are lots of cities that are going to be having these conversations in the next couple of years. And and maybe just as importantly, uh, a real focus on organizing at the neighborhood level to have conversations with people about public safety and what could be done to make them safer than the current system. Uh, So we have not changed the national political conversation. We're not going to get much help from this for this in Washington, I think. But I think at the local level, it is shaking up local politics and and is, is very much an ongoing conversation in a lot of places. And what are some examples of the effectiveness of uh, of local organizing? You know, we've coming out of 2020, we saw this street movement uh, that took place, and I'm you know very curious how that energy translates into other kind of organizing. We've also just come out of a year that where organizing was really driven around voter turnout, and and of course all this is taking place against a unprecedented pandemic. So when, when you see examples of cities where you see some real progress taking place, what have been the, the keys to making that happen that other cities could learn from? So I think it, start, it has to start at the neighborhood level. It has to, and it has to start with, with concrete plans that are framed as public safety interventions. So in Oakland, California, the black organizing project there was witnessing a, a lot of police violence and misconduct directed towards school children. And so they began to organize among the families that had their kids in the school system to say, what can we do to make these kids safer than just having police patrolling the hallways, which the parents knew was causing their kids to be harassed and sometimes arrested and in, a, and in a few horrible cases, you know, brutalized and even killed. 
And so this involved, you know, building out networks of parents and, and other interested people in the community and having face-to-face conversations about what could be better. How, how can we rethink, like, school counselors? What can we do to support families in crisis, which is often a big predictor of the kind of behavior among young people that gets turned over to police? And this, this went on over years. They wrote reports, they did investigations, they lobbied city council members, they turned people out to budget hearings. And the protests this summer helped to create more political space for what had already been done on the ground. It, it helped get things over the hump, so to speak. Interestingly, cities where that history of organizing was not present, were much less likely to win concrete gains this past year. So there were big protests and there were demands made, but that base building in the neighborhoods hadn't really happened yet. And so the politicians, you know, weren't getting pressure from their own neighborhoods to rethink these spending priorities. From an organizing standpoint, does it help to be focused on a specific issue? Like you talk about Oakland really focusing on trying to de-escalate uh, police encounters inside schools. And, uh, and, and I wonder if that becomes a more effective uh, way of getting change made than, you know, a, a kind of bigger slogan of defund police that could mean – a lot of different things and doesn't necessarily, it, it may help to build a philosophical uh, framework, um, but doesn't necessarily you know, move legislation along. Well, I think that's, that's largely true. Now, what we see in some cases, like in Minneapolis and Los Angeles, is the development of a kind of people's budget. So coalitions of neighborhood groups and other interest groups are formed around articulating a new set of overall budget priorities. But the concrete victories tend to flow from very targeted campaigns. We want to get the police out of schools. We want to get the police out of the mental health response business. Or we need an anti-violence intervention that's community-centered and not police-centered. So in St. Louis, there were several years of organizing broadly around the failures of the criminal legal system to produce safety in the black community and the way that that system was causing a lot of harm. But ultimately, it needed to take the form of demands for more money for cure violence programs in the communities and a specific campaign around closing a a jail that was a real source of harm in the community. And both those campaigns became successful, but we don't see this broad transformation of the overall city budget yet. Um, I've uh, heard you talk on other podcasts and mentioned that you sometimes wind up consulting uh, with police departments. um, And I I wonder what that looks like in, uh, in, in the best case scenarios. Well, these days in the U.S., most of the consulting I'm doing is with city council members and occasionally mayors who are trying to figure out how to respond to these demands. 
So it tends to be someone who's sympathetic and is trying to figure out what is possible given the politics of where they are, the budget constraints, etc. And so for me, what that looks like is trying to familiarize people with different models of what is being done in other places and to try to think through a little bit how to build the political will to do this. Now, outside the U.S., I have had inquiries from, from you know, criminal legal institutions to talk about this uh, in places where there's a little bit more sympathy to the idea that police are not necessarily the best solution to every social problem under the sun. But police in the United States have been uh, largely unwilling to have this conversation, and uh, I'm certainly not getting any invitations from any formal law enforcement agency to talk about these issues. I remember you writing about a, a specific uh, police chief, I'm forgetting from where, um, who was outspoken in, in recognizing some of the things that you talk about, that the police are overstretched. Um, you know, they should not be on the front lines of all these different things, homelessness, mental health, uh, schools. Um, and I wonder, you know, if you see that as a uh, as a growing sentiment uh, within uh, police departments or if those are pretty isolated cases. I think there is a, uh, a trajectory within police leadership of chiefs and commissioners who appreciate the fact that they should not be the lead agency in responding to homelessness and mental health crises and school problems, but they're terrified of the idea that their budget might get cut. So they find themselves in a somewhat untenable position of saying, yes, we need the city to take responsibility for more things, but for God's sakes, don't cut our budget. And so this makes it difficult to work in partnership with them because the reality is, is that in a lot of these cities, 25, 35, 45% of the local budget is going to the police department. And so it's just not possible to ramp up other kinds of initiatives when a quarter to half of the city budget is going into the police. So uh, that's part of why, you know, I've had conversations with some of these chiefs, but they're certainly not, you know, looking to work with me on figuring out how to reduce their budget. <laughs> right. <laughs> Going back to thinking about media makers and, uh, and how they are uh, covering police or, or covering some of the things that you're talking about uh, in terms of organizers uh, trying to um, make change. I wonder if you see opportunities for different kinds of uh, coverage or stories that are are waiting to be told. Well, I think we, you know, we've had these this genre of showing the failures of the criminal legal system to produce real justice. So that's important, and we need more of that. I think what's missing are the stories about how we could produce public safety in new ways. What do these civilian outreach teams look like? How do these community nonviolence programs function? We've had a little bit of this around like violence interrupters, uh, but we need a lot more of that. 
what what's what's happening with these attempts of communities to self-organize themselves to better utilize the interpersonal relationships and resources that they already have to resolve disputes and manage problems without getting the police involved. And for a lot of people, these seem like very abstract ideas. And if we could have a generation of documentaries on the ground looking at these efforts, that might help concretize these ideas for people. I mean, even as you say that, uh, you know, I think about filmmakers in uh, pitch meetings and uh, if they've got, you know, one story that's a true crime story and another story that's about, you know, organizers trying to achieve better mental health health outcomes, (laughs) you can just imagine which story is going to get picked up uh, more quickly. Um, And I wonder in the, you know, in the stories that you'd that you speak of liking to see more of if you see ways of telling those stories that can make them uh, as compelling as the true crime suspenseful narrative. Well, there is human drama here, right? Because we are talking about communities that are struggling, where people are having real crises and where lives are lost sometimes. Lost to suicides, lost to overdoses, lost to interpersonal violence, lost to police violence. And these communities are struggling for ways to, to, you know, improve those situations. So I think it's possible to interweave a narrative about the life and death struggles of these communities with a conversation about, you know, empowerment and and moving forward because these are these are going to be mostly positive stories that that we are capable of making improvements in these dynamics and and all of this is in the context of of this powerful demand for more stories about racial justice and of course that's a, a signal feature of this conversation right there's a reason why certain communities have been left to make these struggles, uh, and others haven't. And the legacy of racial discrimination is a big part of that conversation. Well, I, I think what you're saying also points to who traditionally has been uh, empowered and funded to tell these stories, and uh, and the the you know which communities are included and excluded from uh, from those ability to tell stories. Yeah, we should look at like, well, what have the dynamics been of getting projects greenlit that do really take on these questions of racial justice? And often it's not through traditional media networks. It's it's uh, through the largesse of, of black celebrities, someone like Jay-Z stepping in with his own private capital to make these projects happen. Which was the case, I think, with the Khalif Browder film that you were talking about. That's right. Yeah. Um, has anyone approached you about uh, adapting your book into into a documentary? So I'm working with a team that's been trying to figure this out. We've been looking at some of these on-the-ground efforts to produce alternatives to policing, looking uh, at the actual dynamics of organizing and building political power at the neighborhood level to 
decriminalize sex work or to create harm reduction interventions for drugs or to create uh, police-free schools. And so uh, it's not exactly like a retelling of the book, but it's making a film that takes the lessons of the book to heart and looks to see how it could be implemented. I want to thank Alex Vitale for speaking with me. His book, The End of Policing, is published by Verso. While we're on this subject, I want to recommend another podcast, the six-part series, Running from Cops. The host, Dan Taberski, conducts a deep investigation into the longest-running reality TV show in history, Cops. He interviews producers of the show, and also people who were arrested on camera. He explores how the TV crews wound up distorting reality more than representing it. Again, the show is called Running From Cops. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at Pure. Nonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.